White Rocket Entertainment. White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 436. Welcome to On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast, brought to you by White Rocket Entertainment, in association with all of our great friends and supporters via Patreon.com. I'm Van Allen Plexico, and I am here to talk about James Bond, and we are up to our 21st, I believe, Bond film in our monthly coverage of the entire Eon-based series, along with other things sooner or later, and I'm joined as always by my co-host... Alan J. Porter. Welcome aboard, Alan. Thank you, Van. It's uh, moving on to a new era of Bond. I think this is going to be an interesting discussion over the next few months. Yes, it's going to be an interesting discussion tonight because we have quite a feast of a film to sink our teeth into tonight. And it does indeed get us into a new era. And and strangely enough to say about a movie that came out in 2006, the current era. How strange is that? I know. Yeah. No longer after April. I mean, he made it official on Stephen Colbert. Do you see that? Oh no, he did. He did. He's he, so he says this is the last one. Yep. Yeah, he said he was done. So, uh, I guess if you say it to Stephen Colbert, then it, that makes it official. So. <laughs> well, if so, this is the this is going to be the last Daniel Craig movie, right? Yep. Well, the last Daniel Craig. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't normally use the soundboard on this show, <laughs> but I just couldn't resist. <laughs> Wow, wow. Well, as a matter of fact, I have a few things on there. I might leave that up. I have some Bond stuff on there. But, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's interesting news because, I mean, I, we, you know, it's, it's rumored every time. I, I know he had said that before, but I was to the point where I just wasn't sure I was going to believe it. You know? so, and I may still not completely believe it. They could still back. You know, he's kind of like Robert Downey with the Marvel stuff. He can just, they can just keep backing the Brinks truck up to his house and making him say yes. So, yeah. But um, who knows? An- another four to five, six years, we'll find out. <laughs> oh, golly. No kidding. I mean, and he's kind of like, he's kind of like the Queen Victoria <laughs> of, yeah. of Bonds because everybody you think will succeed him will be dead by the time he stops <laughs> playing Bond. You know, I mean, Aiden Turner's going to be on Medicare by the time he, uh, you know, by the time he uh, hangs it up, I'm afraid. So, yeah, that would be well, wonderful. Well, let's say let's let's be positive and say uh, hopefully that was this. The next one is his last one. So. Right. So, well, let's. Yeah. I certainly hope so. So, all right. Well, um, any other before we start actually digging around into the pre, into the preliminary matters? Is there since you had a news bit? Is there any other news bits we need to know that I've missed somehow? Uh, I don't think so. I think that was the the main one of the last the last okay. week. Yeah. So we're yeah. still on track for when we expect this to come out. Uh, still on track for April. April. So. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's not that's an odd time for a James Bond movie to come out. That's, yeah. I mean, the the last time it moved from a the traditional November date, it tanked. So. Which one was that? Necessarily, that would have been License to Kill. I think. Wow. Yeah. They usually okay. I, I was thinking that like. Uh, Goldeneye came out in the middle of the summer for some reason. No, I think that was in November. 
Okay. If, oh. if, if you go to the excellent James Bond lexicon.online website with, <laughs> and look at the, James, uh, the yeah, 007 timeline page, it will tell uh, you. Oh, there you go. Well, that's, that's a handy resource. If only, if only we knew who put that together that we could thank properly, that would be awesome. But oh, well, yeah, I guess yeah. they'll forever be uh, anonymous. So, well, <laughs> we, yeah, so we've gone through, I guess, 20 films now. And it was, apparently, there was a demand for a blonde headed, shorter, less charming, not at all funny Bond. And by golly, they went out and got one. <laughs> I don't think that was quite the checklist. But <laughs> and, and, you know, here's the thing. Okay, now we're going to, obviously, we're going to go into great detail in this movie. And I have a lot to say about it. And I'm sure you have plenty to say about it. But I just want to say up front, because this is something that really jumped out at me. And it jumps out at me more every time I watch this movie. It's that. I don't know that I love Daniel Craig as James Bond. I, I don't know that I love him as the same character that Roger Moore and Pierce Brosnan and Sean Connery and Timothy Dalton and, and Lazenby played. I don't know that I love him as that character. But as a James Bond and as the James Bond we happen to get in this movie, I think he does a great job. And... I, I don't know that this really, in some ways, is a James Bond movie because he doesn't seem like James Bond in almost any way in this movie. He seems like the guy that came maybe before James Bond and and was, like, harder-nosed and yet not as charming and maybe his luck around. I could see this. I could see the Daniel Craig... And again, I know he's done other movies. Duh. We're going to talk about him. I could see the James Bond that Daniel Craig plays just in this movie as going on maybe two more missions and somehow getting killed because he's so reckless and stubborn and, and, and like robotic, you know? I don't see him sliding his way out of things the way that some of the others are able to slip and slide their way out of things. Is this making any sense at all? <laughs> it's actually making perfect sense, and it's actually a very good analogy of the four movies to come to my mind. Okay. Um, I mean, in many ways, this is a new... It's, I mean, to my, my mind, uh, I mean, I've had this discussion argument with other people uh this is not the same james bond as right. the previous um to me that the connery lazenby more dalton brosnan was all the same character mm -hmm. all bit played by different actors but mm -hmm. you know it, it was sort of a, a loose continuous timeline right um and they all had they all played to a certain type well, mm -hmm. albeit with their own interpretations on on it mm-hmm this was set up to be a reboot of the franchise. Um, it's his, it's his origin story is a completely different character. Um, mm -hmm. so to me, it's not the same James Bond as mm -hmm. all the previous guys played. I'm glad um, you said that. That makes me feel better. Yeah. Cause again, I'm not saying I don't, I, I think he's brilliant in this movie. I don't know where that bond goes in the next three or how many ever. Well, I think he's a bit, he's there in the next one. It's the final two to me. Uh, and we'll get, Obviously, we'll get to this as we go through. But to me, in this and Quantum, he was a really great actor playing a character who was a reckless mm -hmm. new secret agent, mm -hmm. learning the ropes, you know, breaking the rules, blah blah blah, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he he acted it really well and he played it really well. He was a very you know he can be a fine actor. Absolutely. I think unfortunately, I think unfortunately, when we got to Skyfall and particularly Spectre. We didn't get a James Bond movie. We got a Daniel Craig movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but we can talk. We'll talk about that more as we sort of go down that slippery slope we, um, over the next. We will because I I am a firm believer that Mendez is vastly overrated as a director, at least on what he does with Bond. And I feel like he absolutely ruined Skyfall and Spectre by, and I don't know how much of it was him and how much of it was Eon, but I feel like they he slash they tried so hard to make both Skyfall and Spectre be more than just another good Bond movie. They tried to make Skyfall be the 50th anniversary extravaganza, and they tried to make Spectre be, look, it's bringing everything back from the ancient days, and it's, oh, everything is interconnected. They tried so hard to do external stuff to those two movies, whereas Casino Royale doesn't try to do anything like that. It is just a hardcore, start-to-finish rock and roll, hard-nosed, hard-bitten, action, suspense, espionage movie. It has the, the, There is almost nothing in common between Casino Royale and the two most recent movies other than Daniel Craig. That's how I feel very strongly. Uh, I was going to say, tell me how you really feel, Dan. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. Um, uh, we talked a bit about it with Diane Another Day, too. Mm-hmm. Is, um, yeah. You know, when the director became more important than Bond. Exactly. This one, we go back, we, this one we go back to Martin Campbell. He knows Bond. He knows the franchise. He knows how to treat Bond. It was, you know, it was done in service of the story. They built it around the story. The story is the central part of it, not the, as you said, the, the fan service right. um, stuff that, that sort of ruined the other two. Um, and again, I, I will have a lot to say when we get to those two. It, um, imagine if Casino Royale had been like an anniversary movie or if Mendez had directed it and saying, oh, here's the things I liked about Bond when I was a kid. Imagine how much worse Casino Royale would have been if it had been created that way. Yeah, well, we could have got the Quint- Quentin Tarantino one, um, oh, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Casino Royale to me is um, so I'm you know I'm going to go straight, and this is n- mm-hmm. my number two on my list. Okay, um, wow, 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 uh, number two. Yeah, and uh, the uh, Sunday Times uh, definitive list puts it at number one. Wow, um, holy crap. <laughs> I don't think I don't think it. There's a couple of things that that stop it being my number one, but I think it is a really good um, Bond movie told really well about a new James, Bo- you know, a new agent called James Bond get you know getting his wings and uh, mm-hmm. f- you know, um, as you said, it's a really strong action adventure spy movie um, built around one of Fleming's best stories. Um, Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's faithful as far as it can be to that story and services the story, not the spectacle, um, I guess is where I'm going with it. So, uh, yeah, yes. it's, it's got a lot to recommend it. It, it, al- um, it almost never slows down, exce- no. except except for one scene. And that one scene is so powerful, I can't imagine it being in any of the more recent ones. We'll get to well, that. It, yeah, I mean, it does slow down. Um, it, it is actually got an interesting sort of harmonic in the pacing of it. Um, yes. But it's again, it's in service of the story, and it's and it, it, it drives the narrative forward even when it slows down um, because those are really, really good character moments. Well, I will tell you where I have it ranked, and I will tell you this too. I've considered moving it up even higher because when I first saw it in the theater, I liked it okay, but the the structure of the movie was off-putting to me the first time or two that I saw it. 
because it has several sort of false endings. You know, it, it seems to come yeah. toward an ending, and then, oh, there's another part, and oh, then there's another part, and then, oh, there's another part. It's, it's almost like Return of the King, you know, in a way. It, it kind of keeps coming to an ending and then adding more, and that was off-putting to me at first. But the last two or three times that I've watched it, knowing that it's structured that way, I could focus more on on the plot and the characters and less on being startled by the structure, okay? And once, once I knew that that's what it was going to do, and I could think more about why it's doing that, I've liked it more and more. So, currently, it is my number four all time. A Daniel Craig movie is my number four all time, and I am... I, it would... Oh, it would be very hard for it to get above any of those top three, but it's it's trying. It's like 3A right now, if not 2A. You know what I'm saying? It's 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 pushing and it's just that because the top three are so good that it's it can't it's not it's not Casino Royale's fault that it's not a top three movie. It's that the the other three are so good that there's just no room at the top. So that's where it is right now. Yeah, I will say it's one of those that, uh, that to me, improves mm-hmm. um, with what each time you watch it. So, absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's get into it. So, uh, let, what what's new at the what's new in the in the opening and everything for this movie that we hadn't gotten before the Daniel Craig era? Okay, so let's well let's do a bit of background first before oh, we yeah, get into yeah. the movie. Absolutely. So, um, so sort of the story. Of this one goes back to 1999 when. Um, MGM um, actually held the rights to Spider-Man and Sony held the rights to Casino Royale so they did a swap Hmm. Uh, um, which sort of is a little ironic because then in 2005 just before this movie came out Sony actually bought MGM which gave them the distribution rights to the Bond movies so um, (laughs) (laughs) um, so so it all all sort of came full circle anyway but uh, so as we probably talked about before Casino Royale was originally done in, as a you know a TV movie in '54, and then those like mm-hmm. rights were sold off independently, which allowed them to do the spoof movie in '67, and then they just hung around. So Eon didn't actually own the rights to Casino Royale until 1999, and it was sort of then in the back pocket. Um, so the the story goes um, that uh, I, I just mentioned Quentin Tarantino. At one point, Tarantino was basically pushing to do a adaptation of Casino Royale. Uh, with Piers Brosnan um, wow. in a out-of-continuity um, sort of separate universe, um, which he would was going to do in black and white um, in set in the Cold War um, as a noir-type movie complete with voiceover narration so he could get Ian Fleming's text into the movie. Oh, wow. That would have been interesting. Uh, which would have been really interesting, uh, but uh, Ian couldn't use Tarantino because, of course, he is famously independent and not part of the Directors Guild, which Ian is contracted to use. And, of course, Tarantino didn't have the rights to go off and do an independent Bond movie, so it never got done. Um, uh-huh. So he claims that's the reason that the producers started thinking about doing Casino Royale. Um, Brosnan was initially sort of being ta- asked um, to come back, but apparently his agent was asking $30 million plus royalties. <laughs> For a return. Wow. Um, Yeah. Um, On the basis that Die Another Day made a ton of money, which he did. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but uh, they decided instead to basically uh, reboot the franchise uh, and go for a younger actor, um, go back to the more more realistic, more basic stuff. I think partly because of what, you know, the success of Bourne and stuff like that. Mm. So um, apparently they, uh, they, 
I've seen various reports, but I, I think up to 20 actors were looked at for the part. Wow. Um, and it, it came basically down to two, um, Daniel Craig and Henry Cavill. Oh, okay. Uh, um, and Craig actually turned it down initially, uh, but then a year later he accepted it, and they felt Henry Cavill was too young. He was about 22, 23 at the time. So, hmm. um, Did uh, you? But maybe we'll, maybe we'll get him next time. I don't know. So. <sighs> what did you see Craig in before Casino Royale or like before he was even announced as Bond? Because I saw Layer Cake and thought, yeah, this dude could be Bond. Absolutely. Well, that's supposedly the, 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 the gig, the, the part that got him the gig as Bond is Barbara Broccoli saw him in that and was sort of started her infatuation with him and was mm-hmm. a professional infatuation um, <laughs> with him and um, oh, you know, alleged uh, and suggested him for the part. So uh, I haven't actually seen him in that. Um, I actually hate to say it. I still have not seen Layer Cake. It's actually on my net. Oh, man. Jill and I would go. Th- Jill and I were going through our Netflix list the other day looking for movies, and it's like, what the hell? We still haven't watched that, so it's now on our Netflix watch list. <laughs> good. Um, it's a good movie. I, all, I, all I knew him from was Lara Croft's boyfriend in the second Tomb Raider movie. Oh, gosh. I didn't even remember that. I had no um, idea. Wow. So that's that's all I knew him from. Huh. Um, so I, I must admit, I didn't really have – I didn't have a strong sort of opinion one way or the other. I, I sort of trust Eon. Um, I, you know, yes, he didn't look like Bond – yeah, was described in the book in the books, but none of them have looked like Bond as described. Nah, in the I books, know so. a, a lot of people complained about it though that he wasn't tall enough, and he was. They were like, "It's not James Bond; it's James Bond, and all that." So, yeah, my yeah. idea was, I don't as long as it's good, I don't really care, you know. Exactly, exactly. So, um, interesting thing was this one didn't get much of a budget increase for even for a. Um, I think uh, it went up to one hundred and fifty million from the 142 for Die Another Day, which is not a huge no. leap for, um, particularly after a gap and, re, re, you know, for rebooting the franchise. So, um, Quite, let's see, two to four years, four-year gap, two to six. I, you yeah. know, I, I was just thinking about it. I, I started to say, well, gosh, that's amazing because it seems, you know, but when you really think about this movie, though, if you think about the money they spent on Die Another Day, there's a lot of like big, fantabulous, fantastical sets, and you know the ice castle and the lasers and all that kind of stuff. This movie is much more down to earth. So it is, yes. It yeah. in in some ways, this movie looks more expensive until you actually think about what you saw. It's like there's something about Craig. There's there's something about him in this movie particularly, but there's something about Daniel Craig that does lend a kind of a grave gravitas to things, you know? And so when you put Daniel Craig in his tuxedo and the really nice cars and a casino, um, that to me seems like there's more money on the screen than poor Pierce Brosnan with a vanishing car and an ice castle and lasers and stuff. I'm sure the oh, ice yeah. castle and lasers cost a lot more to film, but... Just putting real-world opulence on the screen just seems richer to me, you know? Yeah, and I think they could do that because it was a more, you know, close set. A lot of it was, you know, interior rooms. There wasn't big expanses of, you know, as you said, big outdoor sets, Um, you know, big labs and strange machines. Yeah, exactly. It was... It was a very realistic, you know, and they they reused a lot of stuff, and a lot of it was filmed in the UK. Um, so yeah, it, it, I think it was a well tightly controlled budget. And yeah. I, to your point, I think the fact that they weren't 
doing all the big extravagant stuff meant that they could actually use it in the costuming and the set dressing and the way it was just filmed made it made it look like there was a lot more on screen. There's so. not there's not that one big giant villain's lair set that we have in so no. many of the earlier ones, you know. There's not yeah, it's I was just gonna say, I could take my iPhone and drive around Beverly Hills and just film stuff and make something that looked a lot more expensive than if I threw a bunch of CGI up on a screen, you know, and spent a right. million dollars on it. And that's kind of how this movie is. This movie uses real world things that look expensive, but it's not that expensive, it doesn't seem like, when you really think right. about it. That's interesting. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah. I, and, you know, they did go for the realism. They went back to practical effects. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think you, should, you know, should always try and do it for real rather than just throw CGI at it, which is, you know, the slippery slope they were heading down. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, just going back to those basics really paid off. Yeah, it did. And this is, yeah, this is a very, this is a movie about characters and about plot. It's not about opulent, it's not about extravaganza, really. Yeah, it's- and actually when you think about it, the plot's pretty thin anyway. I, I, I mean, This is very much a character-driven movie. Yes, exactly. It's a, it's a plot I actually understood the, most of more, <laughs> more or less the first time, which is very unusual for me. With a, usually with a Bond movie, it takes me two or three showings to really figure out all the little moving parts, you know, because they throw all the pieces at you so fast that you kind of get caught up in the, in the excitement and never really stop to think, at least me, and, you know, afterward, I'm like, wait, why was all that happening? You know, I was yeah. enjoying it at the time, and I was just trusting that it was happening for a reason, which, in as, as you and I have talked about in the past, that's not always a safe assumption that everything is happening for a logical <laughs> reason, you know. But, uh, yeah. all right, well, okay, any other okay. preliminaries? I know it, it did pretty well. It didn't make Skyfall money, but it made uh, about $600 million, right? Yeah, just just over $600 million, yeah, which is pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty good, good until... Till, yeah. Until the last two came along, and yeah. I, honest to goodness, Alan, I just—I I know we don't want to go there yet, but I just don't understand how two of the weakest movies ended up making so much money. But then again, I think that like two of the Star Wars movies that made the most money were two of the absolute weakest ones too. So what are you going to do? I don't know. But anyway, uh, yeah. no, no accounting for people spending their money. Well, right, so let, 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 let me ask you another question. I'm sorry. Let me ask you another question. Yeah, sure. This is the well. It's not. I was going to say this is the first Bond movie that tries to do an arc, but honestly, they do play around with that idea a little bit with Blofeld. They don't, but they try. You know, they 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 kind of gesture vaguely in the direction of an arc. Okay, with with yeah. Tracy and Blofeld. Okay, what did you think about a? They go back. To Bond's beginning, and B, they try to turn the the Craig movies into kind of an ongoing series. I mean, what what did well, you make I, of I'm that? Not sure, I'm not sure they they were going to. We, we'll talk about that as we get into each of them. And I, I think trying to retro, retro, retroactively yeah. um, retcon um, mm-hmm. the movies and shoehorn them into a continuity was insane. Um, but they don't really do that with this one. I mean, they don't set this one up that way, um, other than the you know the very the very ending you know, with Mr. White, I mean, they do. Yeah, but we don't know that. Uh, yeah, that's true. You're, you're, you're saying that knowing what comes after. You're right. But when you just watch this movie, we don't know that. And this movie is not set up that way. True. Okay. This movie does not say, hey, there's a sequel. You know, it's no. only when Quantum comes and it's like, oh, hang on a minute. This is an immediate sequel to Casino. But Casino doesn't set that up. You're right. Um, um, so, you know, I actually think, you know, this actually... St- Stand, it stands on its own really well. Um, yes, so. it does. 
Yes. Well, let's yeah. let's uh, let's roll the trailer here. Your file shows no kills, Bond, but to become a double O, it takes two. How did you die? Your contact? Not well. You needn't worry. The second is yes, considerably. The man was Le Chiffre, private banker to the world's terrorists, which would explain how he could set up a high-stakes poker game at Casino Royale in Montenegro. If he loses this game, he'll have nowhere to run. You're the best player in the service. The Treasury has agreed to stake you in the game. But if you lose, our government will have directly financed terrorism. I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off your perfectly formed house. You noticed. I hope our little game isn't causing you to perspire. It doesn't bother you killing those people. Well, I wouldn't be very good at my job if it did. How's our girl melted your cold heart yet? James, get the girl out. You're not going to let me in there. You've got your armor back on. I have no armor left. You've stripped it from me. Whatever is left of me. Whatever I am. I'm yours. The only question remains. Will you yield? In time? So let's dig into this movie now. Okay, so of course we start off with the gun barrel. Yes. What gun barrel? What gun barrel? That's <laughs> my gun barrel. <laughs> there isn't one. You faked me hell? out. You faked me out. Good one. <laughs> there is no gun barrel. No. So you wanted to know what's different? It was mm. different right out of the out of, out of the trap. No gun barrel at the right at the beginning. Um, black and white. Yeah, and I actually love the the black and white noir. We were talking about the Quentin Tarantino noir style, but they actually did that in the in the in the pre-credits sequence here. And I think it works really well. The, uh, the, you know, Bond doing that look. I also like the fact that they had two sort of qualities of the black and white. We sort of had the, the nice crisp uh, black and white with Bond and Dryden in his, in his office. But when Bond is talking about his first kill and we're getting the flashbacks to the really brutal fight in the bathroom, it's yeah. a grainier lower quality black and white i just mm-hmm. love the fact that they actually had those sort of two levels of black and white mm-hmm. um so yeah I, I love this whole sequence of him sort of driving arriving in the office finding bond there um you know bond making the quip about he's okay earning a bit of money on the side but not if you're selling secrets um and then Dryden's, well you know i'm sure if Emma's going to kill get me killed or whatever you know she just sent a double o and you're not um so i, I again right out the the gate was sort of setting up that this is early in Bond's career. He's not yet a double O. So I like that. It sort of establishes the reboot. Um, and the fact that Bond has sneakily removed Dryden's clip, um, I think is really good. 
Mm. Um, uh, and then, you know, them talking about the kills and, you know, Dryden's, you don't need to worry that they say the second is and the boom on just boom. Yeah. And then says, yes, considerably. I just love that whole line. Yeah. That um, it, it catches you by surprise. I like that they set that up and it's very sudden and very brutal. And you really see what you're in store for with Craig there. Yeah, uh, and, and that and the fight, the the fight yeah. in the bathroom is incredibly violent and personal and close, brutal hand to hand combat, um, you know, and bloody. Um, you know, you there's, don't see Bond adjusting his tie and his cuffs after the, after that fight. I was going to say, know? there's nothing in this movie, certainly not at the beginning, but nothing in this movie that you could see Roger Moore doing other than the poker game. Yeah, bless yeah. his heart, it's just a different kind of Bond movie. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, I really like this uh, this pre-credit sequence. Um, you know, it's a good introduction to a new Bond and a new mm-hmm. way of uh, a new style, um, a new level of action and violence. Um, and then we get the gun barrel, which in this is actually part of the action, which is interesting that they actually, you know, it's not a separate thing. They actually pl- go from the kill into the gun barrel as part of the action. So I thought mm-hmm. that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, before we get anything, the title. Anything se- on, uh, no, this is the title sequence I was going to mention is yeah. we're really yeah. into we've we've totally left behind the old days of 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 Bender now and we are into the animated uh the stuff that we're going to get all the way through with Craig the uh the weird surrealist imagery that's animated and automated but I've got to say this is one of my favorite Bond themes and it grows on me as well Oh, what, you know my name? Yeah. Oh, it kicks butt, and it really ushers in the Craig era with a bang. No kidding. I think it is just a showstopper. I love it. Yeah, it's one of my favorite Bond theme songs as well. I actually also love Daniel Kleinman's um, opening credit sequence here um, Mm -hmm. with Craig moving between the credit card motifs um, uh, and and that. And this is the, um, you know, this really sort of evokes Bond, but it clearly positions again, this is a new Bond. Um, this is I, I looked it up. This is the first film since Doctor No where there are no nude dancing females during the opening title sequence. Ah, yeah, You're right. It's some. It is the anti Bond Bond movie. It really is. It, it is, but it still evokes Bond. It's it does. Just one of those thi- yeah. Yes, that's the thing. I have a heart. That's one of the reasons why it's taken me so long to kind of come to all these conclusions and having to see it so many times and think about it so much is because it's like. As a whole, it is totally Bond. But yet, when you think about each individual piece, it's like each individual piece is is the opposite of what we expect from a Bond movie. Yet, somehow, it works. And, but it's- and, and the Martin Campbell directing it blows my mind, too, because I would have bet anything that it was some new director that had never done a Bond movie before and brought all these fresh ideas. And every time I realized, no, it was just Martin Campbell, I'm like, dang, what... Did they swap his brain out? I mean, how did how did Martin Campbell go back to the well and come out with a completely different fish? You know, but it still has his style and the, the close cuts and stuff. And yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It's but. oh man, it's just this, there's so much that is that is intriguing about all this that it that it works and that it's so different and yet it's so evocative and it's the same. It's just really it's hard to pin this movie down because so much of it is. The same, and yet so much of it, so much of it is completely different. It's so weird, right? It's weird. And one of the other one of the other things that is the same is, to an extent, is the fact that music's done by David Arnold. But again, it's like a completely different score. I mean, it's still yeah. recognizably David Arnold, but it it sets a new tone for the mm. score going forward. So. It does. That's right. Yeah, um, I'm actually going to do my um, 
One of my little side notes here. So back in September 2017, Jill and I were lucky enough to go to the debut evening of Casino Royale at the Albert Hall with a live orchestra playing the score. Oh. Can, um, with David Arnold there. David Arnold did a Q&A before, hmm. but at the at the end of the movie where the Bond theme kicks in, and we'll get to that, he actually came out and played it on the electric guitar, <laughs> which was pretty damn cool. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, and we actually also got to hang out in the pub with the crew from James Bond Radio beforehand and stuff. So it was a, it was a fun and very memorable evening. Oh, um, wow. And so seeing Casino Royale in the, in the Royal Albert Hall in London with the live orchestra and stuff. Was, I guess yeah, the, the, only, the only thing even remotely comparable that I've done is I saw the Lord of the Rings Symphony Suite in the Atlanta Symphony Hall conducted by Howard Shore. Which was pretty awesome too, but that's but but all the other peripherals there are pretty amazing that you did. So it was pretty cool. So anyway, so the opening credits fade and we start in rain-soaked Uganda in the terrorist camp. Or was it Madagascar? I was thinking it was Madagascar. No, no, it's Uganda, and then we go to Madagascar. Oh, okay. so the terrorist camp is in Uganda. Okay. Um, or so it said on the screen anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. So. Uh, we get uh, the first hint of Mr. White. Um, oh, I love Mr. White. I love, I love Mr. Mr. White. He's so great. I mean, here, all we, all we think of him is he's just some sort of facilitator guy. We don't know how important he's going to become throughout the whole franchise, so that's, that's <sighs> interesting. I know it. Um, and he's hints at his organization. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, I, I, I just love that. Um, and he does the intro uh, to the sheaf for us, so we get the uh, the... The two main villains. Now, one of the things I've been thinking about while I was rewatching this is who's the villain in this piece? <laughs> well, there's there's who's the several. bad guy? Is there's, it is it Le Chief or is it Mister White? Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's several in different levels. You know, it, there's not like yeah. just the one, and that's actually interesting. And and we we kill off uh, Obano, the the African terrorist guy, relatively early in the movie, and so. Yeah. Because he kind of seems like he could be the big villain, and Lashifer's like the. There's, but you know, the interesting thing though, there's there's three major villains in this movie, and there's no flunky. There's no right. There's, there's no henchman. Yeah, yeah. We, you don't have the, ma- the the main bad guy and the henchman dynamic here. Yeah. yeah, the only way it would be that is if like Mr. White was the main villain and Lashifer is the henchman. But I would say Lashifer dominates the movie by himself way too long to be considered a henchman. And he has his own henchman anyway. Yes, that's true. So the henchman's yeah. henchman. If, you, if you're a henchman with a henchman, you're not a henchman. Yeah. Try <laughs> <laughs> saying that fast five times. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we, so we get the intro to Le Chief. Um, I think he's a very interesting Bond villain and the fact mm. that he has um, no grand plans for world domination or robbing anything. Mm. He's just there to conduct um, business. And the fact that he's actually seen as a potentially valuable asset to MI6 and CIA as well mm-hmm. you know they, they don't want bond to stop him they want bond to bring him in which again is interesting it's different so when, yeah. we, when we get to that part so and you're gonna have to um, explain part of the ending to me because i'm still not clear on one thing but we'll get to that later okay but i do um, I, but can i just say i love mads mickelson's performance in this he is so yes. i mean he's been in a lot of things i liked him in dr strange you know well enough and i liked him in other things he's done but he's so good in this. He's just the most yes. despicable. And yet, like you say, in terms of villains, his his evil scheme is about the least evil scheme of any evil scheme there was. Blow yeah, up, a, blow up an airplane. Is, That's it. On the ground. 
his evil scheme is manipulate the stock market and get even richer than he already is. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. it. Yeah. And and you know, poison a couple of people, blow up a plane yeah, on the ground. But but yeah, I mean, and yet he seems as evil and nasty and snaky as anybody, you know, as any of the villains. So that's really a tribute to him. I think does a great job with it. He does does. So after he gets the ter- the terrorist money to go invest, then we go to Madagascar. Um, okay. So we get the, uh, the 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 snake and mongoose fight in the uh, in the pit with yeah. Bond trekking down the bomber. Um, and, uh, stop touching your ear. <laughs> stop touching your ear, which is interesting because Bond's like the new is a new double O, but I guess he's been an agent longer because he seems the more age yes. more experienced agent on the you know of the two that. of them. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, which leads to the free running chase through the construction site, which is, I think, again, another excellent sequence. That, uh, just talking about character, setting up character, you know, this really establishes uh, Bond as a physical Bond who uh, who can use things around him and improvise, but can also sort of be the blunt instrument of running through walls and, you know, um, not always having to do the same thing that the bad guy does to get to him. So uh, the, the whole, um, I think, free running uh, parkour um, chase was, was inspired. I think it was a great way. Uh, in any other Bond movie, that probably would have been the pre-credit sequence. Yes, you're right. I, you know, that's right. I, watching it, I had two thoughts simultaneously. One was, "Man, this is awesome," and the other was, "Why doesn't Bond just stay on the ground and wait and see where he comes down instead of doing all the jumps and leaps from one death to five? I mean, you know, like my gosh, he just fearlessly jumps across vast spaces in the air and all. And I'm like, just stay on the ground and watch him. And wait for him to come down. He can't stay up there or, forever. Or actually stay on the ground and take a beat on him and, and shoot him. Shoot, shoot him as he's leaping around. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. But it was cool. It was. Very oh cool. yeah, I'm glad he didn't. I'm glad he did the way he did because it was nuts. But it was fun. <laughs> right. I mean, that's one of those deals. You know, they talk about your heart's in your throat, kind of like a heart stopping, uh, breathless action. That's one of the more heart stopping, breathless action sequences in any movie I've ever seen. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, you know, four or five times, I'm like, oh my gosh, Bond's going to die. Uh-huh. So that was yeah. impressive. Yeah. I, I actually think it also plays to the point of, you know, Bond didn't do what he should have done because the guy gets away. I mean, he makes a mistake by yes. chasing him and doing that, that, you know, he, he gives the guy a chance to actually get away. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, Bond makes a mistake and the, the guy escapes into a foreign end embassy where bond makes another mistake by following him in and tracking him down um again a great firefight um uh, and you know we never up with him caught. well I mean, we never do find out who won the mongoose versus cobra fight uh, i thought the snake did <laughs> okay maybe he did i thought just just before things went south he struck but okay. maybe okay um i'm not going to go back and rewind it just to find out. <laughs> that's uh, fine that's fine i just was curious so yeah he tracks right. him so, to the embassy right yeah, um, so we get the fight, firefight in the embassy, and then, of course, Bond ends up uh, cornered in uh, with the troops around him, and then uh, he kills the bomber and then blows the gas tank, which, by the way, doesn't work. They tried that on they, um, with a shot. They they tried that on Mythbusters. They couldn't get it to work. <laughs> so. Not surprised. Um, but, of course, he does it all in front of the closed-circuit TV cameras, so he's caught, mm. um, you know, on the on the press. Um and, uh, and picks up the phone with the ellipsis message, which we don't know what it means yet, but mm-hmm. pretty cool idea. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's but, an, uh, and an infuriating thing where you know that it wasn't Bond's fault that it went south, and we know that he did all that he could to keep the guy alive and until the end. And then when M is chewing his butt for how it played out, 
any normal person, you know, would be like, no, and protest, and Bond just kind of takes it and says, yeah, you know. It's just, that's the difference between a movie hero like this who's stoic versus a normal person, is a normal person would defend themselves. Right. And Bond, that would lower him if he did that. It'd sound like he's making excuses. So he just basically swallows it. Well, he swallows it because he actually also, by that point, had figured out the next piece of the track. So when she's saying, you know, we don't know who the where it came from he's he sort of already thought how how we can figure that one out so mm. um, yeah um so we get a little nice little setup with le chiffre's boat um which sets up the whole bleeding tear duct thing and his yeah. use of the inhaler mm. and the fact he's a high stakes card player or who knows he's you know so um, um and so I, I think that was good um and then it jumps to london where we get um m um leaving the sort of government oversight committee after she's been read the riot act over Bond's actions and it being all over the newspapers. Um, I have to say, I wish they hadn't cast Judy Dench. I love Judy Dench as M. I think she plays it brilliantly. Um, but if this was going to be a reboot and they recast every other right. character, they should have just recast the M character. It could have been another female actress. Um, you know, it could have been another female M, but, um, Judy, this is a different M. Yeah. You know, it has to be a different M. Um, I mean, she actually is a different M. She has a different name. Um, and, yes. Um, same actress, but different version of M. And and she doesn't yeah. play it the same way either, I don't think. She's no, not she as, doesn't play. Yeah, she's not as compassionate and, and warm and funny. She's just like the hard-nosed boss. Right, at, at this stage. And then later on, she gets too maternal. But we'll get to mm-hmm. those as well. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, I just, you know, I think Judy Dench is great. Um, I think she played a great M during the uh, the Brosnan era. They should have moved on and, and cast somebody else and made it a total reboot. Um, because there, there are, this is, as you said, is a, is a completely different M. Um, so it could have easily have been played by somebody else. Mm-hmm. So just just my little... No, I agree. But right. it's, it's, I, I do enjoy her as, as M, though. So I never really yeah, complained. I, I never really complained. I'm like, okay, we get more of her. But I, I think, in a technical sense, though, you're right. So, yeah, okay. Um, and then during the dialogue, we get the established. She establishes that this is Bond's first mission as getting his double O, and he's mm-hmm. like a loose cannon. And you know, did she um, did she sort of promote him too early and stuff like that? So, um, nice little nod here, by the way. M's assistant um, here is called Villiers. Um, I believe he, that character is named for Ian Fleming's friend Amherst Villiers, who was the guy who created the supercharger that Bond had on his Bentley, <laughs> um, and was also an artist who painted a well-known portrait of Fleming, where a copy of which is actually hanging in my office and I'm looking at right now. Oh wow! And he's so, and he's played in this movie by the actor that was in Game of Thrones, but he's also the he's also the husband, the original husband of Claire on Outlander. And he actually played Ian Fleming in a TV movie too. There you go. Nice. So, so a lot of nice little things around that character that's just mm-hmm. basically a background character. So, mm-hmm. um, so we get uh, Bond in M's apartment using the uh, say figuring out the next step because he's he's using M's laptop to trace the cell phone messages coming from a club in the cell phone message that sent the ellipsis code came from a club in Nassau. Um, and then sort of M turns up with the what the hell are you doing in my apartment line um, <laughs> or my home or whatever. Um, I like Bonds and M's repartee here. That I particularly like her, you know, you're a blunt instrument and any thug can kill speech. Um, 
I, I, I like that and sort of Bond's thing about, you know, well, I won't be around long because the life expectancy of a double O is going to be short. Mm-hmm. So um, a pretty good, pretty good speech there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then basically she tells Bond to go off on holiday and stick his, stick his head in the sand. So, uh, <laughs> and then sees that he's been playing around on a laptop. So I sort of, uh, yeah. Um, despite the, the, the Judy Dench thing. And again, don't take that as being against Judy Dench. I think she did a brilliant right. job. Um, I think this is a nice, a nice, again, um, re-establishing the relationship, setting up this new version of M, is pretty good. So, yeah, absolutely. Any additional thoughts on M before we head mm, to the Bahamas? No, no, I think we've covered it pretty well. Yeah. So I, you were t- saying about the structure of this movie. I see this movie as actually three separate stories. There's sort of the okay. Nassau Miami one, mm-hmm. then there's the Casino Royale one, and then there's the Venice one. I think those sort of work as almost as three separate stories. They really are separate too in a lot in a lot of ways, that's right. Yeah. So uh I mean most Bond movies do kind of go to three locations or something like that, but not quite the way this one does. No. I, I, despite the fact I love this movie so much, but it it is almost like very different three acts. Yeah. Um yeah. Very um, much so. so. All right. Um so we get Bond arriving in Nassau. Um we see Le Chief's boat in the harbor as bond arrives um, and then bond drives to the ocean club and he's rented ford bondeo um so this is my ian fleming foundation moment we have the uh, the ford bondeo uh, <laughs> i never doubted it <laughs> um which is actually not a real ford well it is a, it, it's a pre-production prototype which is all made out of fiberglass the radio that you see behind bond's hand behind the steering wheel and when bond's playing with his phone is completely fake it's all stick on labels um <laughs> The headlights are stick on labels um, and has a tiny little engine that just makes it move along. It, it is completely a pre-production prototype. Um, so, uh, it, uh, why do they why do they go to these links? I mean, why not just use a vehicle that exists? Well, the, the vehicle didn't exist at that. Well, the, we'll talk about this when we get to Ford versus Ferrari podcast. <laughs> but that's coming. Um, the you know Ford had a huge. Um, sponsorship deal with this movie. I mean, they have all the way through from the you know the launch of the Mustang and Goldfinger all the way through. Ford yeah. have been all the way through the Bond movies. Very very obvious in this one um, that every single car in this movie was a Ford brand because hmm. um, they owned Aston Martin at the time. So every oh, single okay. car, there you go. Uh, car in this, the Range Rovers, Land Rovers, Daimlers, Aston Martin, everything was a Ford brand. Wow. Um, so uh, you know. It was them basically doing like they did with the Mustang um, and BMW did with the Z3, get, you know, announcing the new car in a Bond movie. In this case, it just happened to be a four-door sedan. That, so, that uh, company that makes the ugly little cars in an ugly little factory. True, yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, we're going to have fun, Alan. Yeah, so, so the whole thing of Bond doesn't drive a Ford, wrong. Um, <sighs> well, I don't. <laughs> Bond may, but I don't. Yeah, so, so anyway... Yeah, so we, we actually have that. So the other fun part of the uh, that little story is, uh, as well as the Ford Mondeo, we actually, I think I mentioned it before when we did uh, uh, The World Is Not Enough, we actually have one of the filming dummies of Piers Brosnan, like they use for long shots, oh, okay. mannequin. So at one point when we were moving from one facility to another, Jill actually drove the Mondeo with Piers Brosnan <laughs> dummy sat in the, in the passenger seat. <laughs> And was texting all her friends like, I'm driving Daniel Craig's car and Piers Brosnan is in the passenger seat. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. So anyway, all right. So that's the only IFF moment for this for this movie. <laughs> um, 
So we, we get the whole thing of Bond arrives at the club. I love the fact that him stopping to tie his shoelace while he's scoping out the security cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, nice little bit of spycraft type stuff going on there. Yep. And then he's mistaken for the valet by the rude guys. Um, and he, <laughs> that's great. Keys. That's another so, one of those. Oh, that's another one of those moments like where uh, where Brosnan in Die Another Day put the guy in the wheelchair. You know, he's annoying, and so yeah. he uses him as a uses him as a weapon, basically. Yeah, and uses what I like here, and I've really not really noticed it until this time. I mean, he does the whole fun thing. It's probably one of the few bits of humor in this this movie where he actually you know dumps the Range Rover in the parking lot, sets off all the alarms and stuff. Never really noticed it until this this time. Bond actually uses that to see what, which room all the security staff run out of to go sort it out, so he knows where the security office is. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, very. Sorry. There's a lot of very clever stuff crammed into just a few very compact motions in this scene, basically. Right, but they're really bad security guys because they leave the security office door unlocked because he just turns the handle and walks in. Just walks so. right in, yeah. And then uses the closed circuit TV to track the time signal of when the phone, the text message was sent from the club. And of course, you know, the guy just happened to stand outside right under the, underneath the closed circuit TV while he was sending the text. You know, it's not yeah. like he, you know, if he'd if have if walked into the entrance, into the lobby and sat on a chair and done it from there, Bond would never have figured it out. But um, Oh, well. Yeah. So a little, little bit of slim coincidence there bond um, always has a lot has some help from fate right fate, yeah, yeah. but i like the whole the whole thing that he goes back to the you know receptionist and asks who has the db5 and you know if he really needed to track him down where would he find him yeah that was so, clever yeah as i say he does a lot of very clever stuff in this whole scene with very practical simple ways of doing it he's not like hiding top secret you know high-tech listening devices and lasers and stuff He's he's tying his shoe. He's doing a clever ruse about hitting a car with his car door or whatever. I mean, that's that's I like that. I respect that this movie that is very grounded in so many ways is very grounded even in its spycraft sort of stuff. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I I love that the, the practical spycraft stuff. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so then we get the, uh, the the scene on the beach where we get uh, Solange on a horse riding by. Which, by the way, is a name from a Fleming short story. Um, okay. She's not actually named in this movie, but I think it's in the credits that she's Solange, which is actually in the name from Bond's girlfriend <sighs> in the short story 007 in New York. Um, well, I have, to, we get, I have to say about her. Yeah. I think she is possibly the most underrated, underappreciated Bond girl in the entire series because you wouldn't even know she was in this movie based on any of the promotion or anything or the posters or whatever. And yet she's really good and plays a pivotal part. And she's so overshadowed by the amazing Eva Green in this movie that by the time the movie's over, you've forgotten she's even in it because Eva Green just dominates the second half of this movie. But Eva Green doesn't even show up till like almost you know halfway through the movie. So right. th- I think this lady is really good, and I think she deserves more attention for this than she got. Yeah, I think she plays it very well, and uh, it is the you know the usual sacrifice. I mean, we still have the formula; she's the usual sacrificial lamb. Right. So we sort of get another sacrifice at the end. But um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think she's very much overlooked, um, mm-hmm. partly because Eva Green was just so sensational. So, exactly. Um, yeah, um, and we get Daniel Craig's famous standing up in his blue trunks, showing off his buff body <laughs> moment. He gets to be uh, Ursula Andress finally. Yeah, I actually read something this this time when I was doing some of the background reading that uh, yeah, that was actually an, an accident. He was meant to be just swimming, 
and he hit a sandbar or something and stood up huh. um and they caught it on film and it yeah so um okay. but uh it, it it wasn't as planned so um made a lot of made a lot of folks very happy though yeah so, yeah good so uh <laughs> so we, we then get bond um letting M know where he is because he's using her credentials to hack into the MI6 internet. <laughs> which is funny. Um, so which makes the connection between Dimitrios and Le Chief. Um And then we get the poker game against Dimitrios where he wins the DB5. Again, great moment, table stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love that. Um, so one of the girls, one of the girls, one of the uh, ladies at the card table was in a previous Bond movie 41 years previously. Well, I know the Asian lady at Casino Royale was, was one of the Bond. Right. From, but, but is she in this one too? No, a different, different girl. Different okay, woman. Th- then I don't know. So this is the, the lady uh, at the card table um, is Diana Hartford, Diane Hartford, and she was in Thunderball. She was the girl in the Kiss Kiss Club that Bond very briefly flirts with. Um, who then says, oh, I didn't know your wife was turning up or whatever. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. How about that? So she apparently holds the record for the longest gap between appearances in Bond movies <laughs> of 41 years. So. Wow. Well, the, the lady that's the, in the Casino Royale scene, it must have been pretty close to that too, right? Yeah, she, she's 36 years or something, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, she was in – What? which one was she in? Do you only have twice? She was, well, we'll get to that. But yeah, she was, the, she was uh, the Chinese girl at the beginning of You Only Live Twice. Okay, so. yeah. Yeah. Um, so we get Dimitrios meeting with Lashif, who basically tells him to sort things out, and then we jump to um, the uh, the Body Works mu- exhibit in um, Miami, uh, which is pretty freaky. Uh, have you ever been I, to that? No, I'm, been to that? nor shall I. <laughs> I've seen it a couple of places in museums and a couple of places I've been in town at the time, and I'm like, should I? Shouldn't I? I've not done it yet, but I don't know. It's the sort of thing Jill would like, but it's not, not mine. Um, nope. Yeah. Um, and then we get the... Uh, I, what I really do like here is the close quarter, slow-moving knife fight in the middle of the crowd. Never seen anything like that before in a movie. Very effective. Yeah, that was interesting. I. This is Demetrius, right? Yeah, yeah. He's interesting. He's another one that I almost forget is in the movie because the African warlord really jumps out at you a couple of times and literally once. And and Mads Mikkelsen is so good. Mr. White is so slow burn, subtly good. Um, there's a number of, you know, villains in this movie. I always forget this guy's even in the movie. And then once he appears, I'm kind of like, oh, it's that guy. But he's not bad. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, uh, he, he always, I'm always annoyed when he shows up and I remember he's in it. And I'm like, oh, I got to suffer through this again. But then when I watch it, I'm like, well, I don't know why I had that attitude because he's not that bad. So... No, I mean, he plays this slimy arms dealer very well or whatever. Yeah, yeah, whatever he's doing. Uh, Yeah, but I think that the knife fight, uh, just the two of them in close quarters struggling for control of the knife is is excellently done. Um, Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, Then we switch to Miami Airport. Um, We get the ridiculous Richard Branson cameo. Throws me out of the movie every time I see it for (laughs) a split second. Yeah. Um, One thing I've never figured out, um, because this is post 9-11. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. How did Bond get through to the departure lounge without a ticket? Yeah, well, there's a lot of, yeah, so. Mm. Well, they, I mean, there are, there are so many other places where they address the small things. Yeah, that, that's true. That when they don't, it sort of jumps out at me, if that that's, makes sense. No, that's true. So, that's good. So the, air, um, the, air, the airport thing is a scene that confused me originally. 
because this movie does have kind of wheels within wheels. Again, it's it's a fairly straightforward plot, but that's assuming that you catch two or three important mo- important points. And one of right. them is how does this airport have anything to do with a card game at coming up at Casino Royale? How does that have anything to do with an African warlord? I mean, if you don't understand, it, there, there, there's a there's a key thing you have to understand for this movie to make sense, which is that Le Chiffre takes the movie from the African warlord and plans to bet a, bet on this airline failing. Yes. And, and then he's going to make the airline fail by blowing up its plane, which somehow would make the airline go bankrupt. I don't understand. I mean, they, they, they well, try to explain it. it the, but. Yeah, it was not the airline. It's the, the, the manufacturer, and that was their new super-duper Yeah, the superjet. So. so, yeah, and so when Bond... You're like, why is Bond going to such great lengths to keep this plane from getting blown up? But the but when he keeps it from getting blown up in a in a really great way, which we'll get to in a second, um, that puts Le Chiffre in a in a really bad situation now because he's lost all that money. So then he organizes Correct. the card. That's that's kind of a convoluted little deal that it took me a couple of viewings to really fully understand what was going on there. Maybe I'm just right. slow on the uptake. No. Uh, and Bond didn't stop the bombing just because of the Le Chiffre connection because he didn't know about that. He just stopped the bombing because he didn't want a bomb going off at a major yeah. airport. I mean, he was just being a good guy. Well, so, it uh, still went off, just <laughs> in a different yeah, yeah, place. Right. In a different way, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I, another thing I do like here is, again, we're showing Bond's little bit of inexperience by, you know, that he allows himself to be spotted trailing the bomber because, you know, when the guy stops to look at sunglasses and uses the mirror to see Bond trailing him and stuff like that. So Yeah, that was uh, good. Yeah, and then Bond figuring out what the ellipsis means. That was pretty cool. Um, so what did the ellipsis mean? It's the key code. It's the key, pa- key, uh, key code on the security door. But instead of it being the numbers, it's because American keypads have numbers and letters, it's the letters spelled out. Okay. But it showed up earlier, though, right? Yeah, that was the code that was sent to the bomber on the cell phone. Okay. So basically, Demetrius found out what the co- This is the way I read it. Okay. Demetrius finds out what the code the security code is for the, the on the keypad for the security door at Miami Airport. He then texts that to the bomber in Madagascar because he's the guy he's contracted to go blow up the plane. So it's like his his this is the security code. But then when Bond finds that text, he uses that text to trace it back to Demetrius in Nassau. But because the original bomber has been taken out by Bond, he then has to contract the other guy. Okay. So he has to, but he doesn't know that code. So he has to go to Miami to give him the equipment and a cell phone with that code on it. Okay. I'll yeah. Go. Yep. Works for me. Sure. All okay. Right. All right. But again, you, this is all very. Again, you know, you, you said before it's a it's a pretty straightforward plot. And it is, but you have to understand two or three key things like that for it to totally right. make sense. So yeah. 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 For every little to connect every little thing, but even if you don't connect every little thing, the 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 overall plot arc, uh, story arc works, I think, even yeah. if you don't pick up everything. So. Sure. Um, I will say the Skyfleet prototype launch thing is silly, <laughs> stupid. Um, I'm sorry, I, like, as I've mentioned before, you know, I started out my career in the aerospace industry, um, was actually at the, the launch of a couple of major, uh, new airplanes. Um, they don't get rolled out of hangars at major airports in the middle of a normal traffic day. They're held at the manufacturers' airfields, they're big events, they're big marketing events. Yeah, yeah it's not like they showed it in there and it's mm. a silly plane too i mean they, apparently they were going to do it with the new um airbus a380 which had been really cool because i actually worked on that in its early days huh. um but they uh, it, they ended up taking a 74 they couldn't use it so they ended up using a actually if you ever watch top gear mm. do you ever watch top gear i do not but i know what it is 
Okay, well, their test track is on an airfield in Dunford in the UK, and there's always a big old white 747 sitting by to the side of the, the, the runway. They basically took that 747 and dressed it up. Um, so, oh, okay. And, and they filmed it at Dunford. At the same place the Top Gear test track is is where they filmed most of the sequence, plus a little bit at Miami Airport. Oh, okay. um, so, uh, But I will say, despite it being stupid, the fact that, uh, you know, if stuff was – there was vehicles – and mayhem going on around active runways and stuff. Aeroplanes wouldn't be landing. One of the first things they would have done is close the airport and diverted flights that were coming in to land. You wouldn't get uh, um, stuff like that. And there would have been more than three police cars out there. Um, but having said that, I think the actual airport chase sequence um, is pretty cool. And I love the, the the sneaky switch of the detonator at the end. Um, on oh, that's so good. That's so good. Yes. Yeah. Love so, it. So basically for, you know, um, the, the way that Bond finds the detonator on, on the fuel tanker and hooks mm-hmm. it to the guy's belt during the fight and the guy doesn't realize it's there until he presses the cell phone to activate it, I thought was was pretty cool. Oh, so. it's fan- Yeah, it starts beeping and he like suddenly looks down. He's, he's so smug, you know, I've won, I've won. Ha ha. Beep, 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 beep. He's like, ah. It's very yeah. much like the guy in the underwater suit in For Your Eyes Only. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, mm. very, very much like that. So, I actually also like the fact that they arrest Bond at the end of this. Yeah, Again, oh, is- brutally arrest him. Sure. Yeah. Why yeah. wouldn't they? They think he's the terrorist there or whatever. Yeah. Surprised yeah. they didn't shoot him. And again, a different Bond, you know, Bond's cut and he's got cuts and lacerations and wounds and stuff. And he still has them when he gets back to Nassau to meet M. He's still, you know. Mm-hmm. Looking like he's been in a fight, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. yeah, this is a, yeah. This again. This is Roger Moore would have would have magically healed. <laughs> well, right. with Roger Moore, they would have gently restrained him while yeah. cracking some kind of joke about you, some kind of secret agent boy or something like that. <laughs> Whereas with Daniel yeah. Craig, they just beat the hell out of him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yes. All right. That's true. Um, and then we, we really get the setup of Casino Royale. Um, yeah, so Bond really comes back good. to NASA, meets with M. M does the whole exposition about uh, Le Chief betting, you know, with his client's money on the mm-hmm. stock being shorted. Talks about the whole thing. You know, they put the tracking device in Bond's arm. That's probably about as close as we get to Q in this movie. I don't know if that was meant to be that Q or just somebody from Q branch or whatever, but... Um, um, and then we we get to the train, and it's interesting because whenever I think about this movie, I always think about it, it's you know such a good adaptation of the novel. Um, but actually, the adaptation of the novel doesn't start until literally halfway into the movie. Yeah, I tend to think of all the pre, all the stuff we've gone through as being like I don't know the first sort of fifteen twenty minutes of the movie, but it's not. It's like almost an hour. I mean, it's it really is. It, it's the first half of the movie. Um, you know, the actual Casino Royale bit is, it, you know, yeah. it's the middle third. It is. So. It is. I have, a, and that's another reason why the movie is structured oddly. I have another plot question for you, okay? Mm-hmm. If, if MI6 knows Lashif is financing terrorism and they're concerned that any money he wins off of them is just them helping him finance terrorism and they want him brought into custody... Instead of sending Bond to play a poker game with him and, like, apparently be good losers, and if Bond was to lose and Lashif was to win, they would just let Lashif walk away with all that and walk away with all that money. Why don't they just send in, like, the special forces to grab Lashif and all the money and just take him in a helicopter and fly away? Well, they don't need him even to force the money. I mean, 
they know where he's going to be for the next several days. Yeah. Why not just go in and grab him? That's what I'm saying. Why, why, like, yeah. why they, they act like, oh, if we lose this poker game, he gets away and he takes all our money. I'm like, well, then don't let him. What, <laughs> what part of catch the bad guy am I not understanding here? Right. I mean, if you go back to the original novel, the whole idea was to make, was for Lashifa to move, lose the money. Therefore, he would be even further into Smirsh, and Smirsh would come and assassinate him, which is basically what happened. Yeah. Um, and he would, you know, it would take him out of the equation. So, um, yeah. But you're right. If, if they want to snatch him that badly, um, just do it. Just go do it. Yeah. It's, it's like if, yeah, send, it's like send, if in, send in the SAS. You know? I know, exactly. I'm like, if, it's like if the SEAL team went into Pakistan to get bin Laden, and bin Laden's like, we must play a backgammon game over this. And the SEAL team guys are like, dang, I hope we're good at backgammon because if, if bin Laden wins this backgammon game, we have to leave and we have to give him our wallets on the way out. Oh, no. And I'm like, just shoot him. <laughs> what the <laughs> heck? Why are you? Why are, I mean, I'm glad they don't. It makes a heck of a great middle of the movie. Movie, I just don't get it, but okay, let's just go with it. Yeah, we'll just go with it. Yeah, all right. So, <laughs> so realism up to a point. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. So, um, so we get the train bond on the train um, to Montenegro. Mm-hmm. Again, why they moved it? Why they didn't leave it in the Seth, uh, on the in France? I don't quite know. But anyway, yeah, sorry. that was odd. I, I guess we'd never had a Bond movie in Montenegro, although right, it was it. gorgeous. It looked the exteriors and the train looked beautiful. Yeah, but that's Czechoslovakia, which is where they filmed it. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. Okay. okay. Um, Brink, crush me down, Alan. That's fine. Don't worry. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, so we get the intro to Fest, but I will say this has got to be one of the best Bond Girl intros. <sighs> um, just, I mean, from the line, I'm the money on. Um, yes. Through the dialogue. Snappy. The exposition, the repartee, the character analysis. Um, the whole th- that thing on the train, I thought, was just brilliantly done. <laughs> oh, the of them. oh, speaking of which, and this is the thing we should have said at the beginning. I knew there was another news item I wanted to mention at the beginning, and I'm going to mention it now simply because talking about Vesper's introduction, the dialogue, and all that. This is not exactly new news, but it was new to me, and I think it's worth mentioning that Did I'm sure you know this because it's been around and you know all this. Who was brought in to do some dialogue writing? She's doing a lot more than dialogue writing. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay, tell us more. You're talking about, I'm going to get her name wrong, Phoebe Waller-Bridges? Something, something like. along those lines, yes. Fleabag. Yes. Yeah. The, 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 Fleabag, the, yes. The awesome Fleabag, yes. yes. She was brought in to co-write, or at least script doctor, the to script, yeah, script doctor, um, pump up some of the stuff to do some Tarantino uh, type stuff to it, basically. Yeah, yeah, um, and and in in tomorrow's dies death another yesterday today, which is what yeah, I'm calling this movie. Yeah, so basically, she's taken the Purvis and Wade thing that took him four years to write, doesn't, <laughs> um, and making it into a real script. Uh, <laughs> Love it, and I'm just gonna say I am 100 percent down with that. Because she is brilliant and funny and clever. And these movies, especially after the last couple, can desperately use that in the script. And so I'm very I much looking forward. I sincerely hope so. Because um, uh, everything that we've heard about from a synopsis point of view just makes me go, ugh. Oh, so really? uh, um, I'm just hoping that uh, you know she's going to take whatever they came up with and really polish it up. Um, you know, even if the even if the plot remains stupid, it really helped with the uh, 
with the dialogue with the character the dialogue and the character building and the she, character interactions so she yeah. is pretty much the last person i would have thought of for a bond movie script but once i heard it i'm like yeah absolutely that makes perfect sense well, i can totally well, see well, it apparently that, yeah that is it was Daniel Daniel Craig. Craig that brought her in yeah mm-hmm. so, yeah. yeah so yeah. yeah um and by the way, despite what the... I mean, she's not the first female scriptwriter on a Bond movie. Uh, a lot of people tend to forget that actually there was a female scriptwriter on both Dr. No and From Russia With Love. So. Wow, that's right. Okay. Let me so. let me say, before we get into our... Uh, we just brought in Vesper, and we're about to get into the Casino Royale scene. And before we yeah. do that, let me go ahead and, and, and thank our patrons that keep shows like this on the air. For as little as a dollar a month, you can join our ranks... And keep all the various White Rock Entertainment shows. Alan and I do this show. We do our racing show. That we were, That's what we were alluding to earlier was that we're coming up on time to do a couple more of our open wheel racing shows. We're going to do, a, we're going to do some, some, a sub-series of movie reviews about racing movies there. Can't wait. And, of course, we do the White Rocket podcast. Jared does, you know, you know Jared and, and Devin and the gang do uh, the uh, Rookie Agents. We've had the Music of Bond series coming out for the last few months. We do a whole lot of stuff, and we can't do it without your help. So uh, www.plexico.net, P-L-E-X-I-C-O.net, will take you to the link to let you sign up and become a patron, and we really appreciate it. Here are the fine folks who are currently patrons of our programs. We have to thank Matthew Flowers, Carl Von Drunker, Samuel Salvatore, and Christopher Burlinson. There's Phil Amthor, Ben Spooner, Gary Grant, Wynn Carroll, Brian Gray, Winston Body, Willie Carden, Tom Anderson, Susan Trawick, Logan Chilton, Stephen Thompson, Chris Usher, Justin Bean, Steve Trawick, and Richard Stevens. And then there's William Morgan, Phil Davis, Joshua Corbett, John Atsuki, Preston Settle, Daniel Odom, A.U. Falling Up, Alchemist, Kevin Smith, Clarence Alford, Will Summerford, David Hegler, John, Johnny Caldwell, Theodore Gary, Reynolds Wolf, Joel Beckham, Valiant Hermes, Jacob and Robin Fleming, Clay Henson, Ann Kangian, Catherine England, George Gaston, John McCune, David Evers, Andrew Barber, Timothy. You know how much we love you guys. We read every one of your names every episode. There's Steve Harlan, Dan Thompson, Wes Atkinson, Rich Reimer, Jared Albrick, we know him, and William Glenn Matthews. Oh, yeah, let's see. There's a few more. Stephen Houston, Kato the Barner, Dan- Danny Flack, Papa Todd, Russell Milling, Kevin Kenoy, Don Ziederman, Ross, Lane Middleton, Shannon Butson. Then we have Randall Walker, Mickey B., Hugh Anderson, Shane Bailey, Mick Vigicana, Chris Thrash, Tony Perry, Alex Wynn, Josh Teal, David Simpson, Earl Ricks, Mike Finley, and C.T. Wayne. And in our final stretch, we're in the final stretch now. We're in the Daniel Craig of naming our <laughs> of naming our, our backers. We have Jeremy Minton, Wardan Wade, Spanky, J.W. Rice, Jason Albrecht, Kevin Mahan, uh, Mahan, always mispronounce his last name, Stephen Wyatt, Trevor Johnson, Auburn Elvis, Robert Drain, Brandon Smith, Royce Alvarez, Thomas Brinson, David Smiley. Quite a few of these, by the way, I think are supporters of this particular show, Alan. Uh, Matthew Wagstaff, Donnie Reynolds, Wade Carson, Ivor Evans, John Zavachin, Michael Morton, Lawrence Kane. I promise we're near the end, but we have so many great supporters and we are so appreciative. Darren Pyle, Chris Camo, Ben Amos, Ruth, and Darren Sutherland. We appreciate you too. Patrick Williams, Rob Morgan, Stephen Schuster, James Taylor, John Stubbs, Kenneth Brent Rains, Nicholas Craig, Johnny, uh, Joey Miller, Mark Squire, Chris, Brant Rumble, the awesome Surfer Chickify, and our other one-time and anonymous donors. We thank you all. Go to www.plexico.net and you can click on the Become a Patron Patreon link and join the group. All right, now, so we just introduced the money, i.e. Eva Green, yes? Yeah, well, first off, thanks again to, because I never say it, thanks to all our patrons, yes. uh, supporters. We appreciate uh, it. We couldn't do this without you. Really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And we will actually be starting the next generation of the Bond Music Show uh, 
with a slightly different format, which Jared and I will be recording the first one of those tomorrow evening. Excellent. Glad to, glad to hear it. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, yeah. So Eva Green, I'm the money. Um, mm-hmm. As we said, brilliant, brilliant uh, intro. Um, mm-hmm. Very, I think probably one of the best Bond girls, not quite Tracy, but pretty close. Yes. Uh, um, so very, very Because cool. she has quite uh, a range. She has a range to her. You know, she gets to yeah. do different things and she's good at it. She pulls it off. Yeah. And she gets involved too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and she, you know, she has a role to play. She has an expertise, um, you know, um, supposedly with the, with the, with the money. Um, so yeah. I think she uh, has she more, I think she, 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 you know, she has some, has a mind of her own. She doesn't yes. always do what Bond tells her. So. And she has, yeah. I think, I think that this script give her, gives her more to do than almost any other Bond girl. Yeah. Gives yeah. her more to do and gives her more of a range to do it in. Tracy to a certain degree does too. And I think that's why the two of them are up there so high. But, you know, there's the ones that I like that are just cool, like Michelle Yeoh, obviously. I just love her. But she doesn't get anywhere near the 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 meat to play with in this role that that Vesper has, you know. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to go back to my favorite Bongo. I think Natalia um, sort of plays that role as well because she mm-hmm. also does the thing of getting under Bond's skin and stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, finding out what makes him tick. So, um I, I sort of put those all together. So, yep. um, but yeah, Eva Green is is really good, um, and for a French actress, her English accent is pretty damn good. Man, um, wow, I didn't realize that. What that she was French? No, she does so many. She's done so many things. As yeah. the, I just thought she was English. No, nope, she is French. So, um, right. So, uh, oh yeah, we get Bond uh, when they check into the hotel, and he's been given that stupid cover story and stuff, and Bond completely ignores it and says, you know. The roots for Bond, and you have yeah, and then she's like, "Why are you blowing it?" And he's like, "Well, he knows who I am anyway, so why are we going through this sort of charade?" And get the, <laughs> I love great. the whole great line of her getting in the elevator on her own, and she's like, "There's not enough room in here for you, for you and your ego." That's uh, great. Yeah, they have some really nice repartee there. Yeah, yeah, um, and then he sort of pops out to the uh, to the hotel where they've very nicely left him an Aston Martin DBS, um, <laughs> waiting for him with a with a gun in. in uh, and other devices. So we, we get the first little hint of a gadget here, um, but that's about it. Um, and then he also meets uh, Rene Mathis for the first time, um, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty cool. Um, never really figured out who Rene Mathis works for. I mean, in the book, he's part of the uh, the French Secret Service, the Deuxième Bureau. Um, he doesn't say that here, or if he did, I missed it. But he has that line about, I'm just working on my own. So I'm not quite sure what his affiliation is here. I, Unless I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, I, I never did. That was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. I never understood his what he was doing in this movie. I, I assumed, just from how things first start out with him, that he's a French agent that is, and I guess I read the book that influenced that, but I assumed he was a French agent sort of liaisoning with, liaising with Bond and there to right. help Bond and to help Eva Green, uh, Vesper. And then later on, we are to believe that he's the traitor. And then we are to find <laughs> out, well, he's not. And then I, I'm just very confused about his character. I just I know less about his character at the end of the movie than I did at the beginning, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think he is meant to be the French liaison stuff, but... I- Obviously, he's just been sent out on his own. Doesn't have the whole network with him and stuff. Um, but obviously, knows enough to get the uh, the chief of police, aka the movie producer, 
uh, arrested. Um, yeah. So nice, <laughs> little, nice little Michael Wilson cameo there of the as of the chief of police. Oh, is that uh, is that who yeah. that was? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's Michael Wilson. Oh so, man. Michael G. Wilson. So, um, his one of his ever increasing cameos. Um, what I also then we get to the hotel and casino and we get the whole um, scene with the desk dress and the dinner jacket. Um, I love that line that there are dinner jackets and there are dinner jackets. And mm. This is the latter. Um, yeah. And Daniel Craig. And this is the only movie where Daniel Craig looks really good in a suit. Um, <laughs> I hate Daniel Craig's wardrobe. Um, but I'll tell you what, he looks good in that flipping dinner, that tailored dinner jacket. It looks really good. It does, um, yeah. Yeah, he, he he looks like Bond. He has Bond style in this movie. Um, he disappears in the others, but he has a Bond style in this movie. That's true. Um, I mean, we then get into the game. We get a very low key introduction to Felix Leiter, who's just another player in the game um, at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Then we get the the game. Um, of course, one of the big changes here is uh, you know in, in the book it's it's Baccarat or Shaman Fair mm-hmm. uh, that they're playing here. It's uh, Texas Hold'em. Um, I can sort of see why they did it. Um, it's more known to the wider audience. A lot of people know how to, the basics of how to play it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually think it was probably slightly more cinematic than, you know, I think Chaman Fair works for the, you know, the, the short scene of Bond walking into the casino playing sort of, you know, a couple of hands of Chaman Fair, yeah. you know, taunting the bad guy and walking off with the, with the Bond girl. Um, but where it's got a, you know, sustain basically the middle third of the movie i don't think that would have worked i think texas hold'em works much better for that so yeah it was popular that was a time when it was a big thing too it was all on espn and it was just a big deal so yeah i totally yeah. wasn't surprised by that i did hate yeah. that it, they, they used the, a texas poker format for this thing in this exotic european locale that was the that was the only thing i didn't like about it. if it could just have been poker but, it, the, right. but making it Texas Hold'em because that was the big thing in the pop culture at the time just to me seemed out of place in that in that environment. But whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't hang about enough casinos to know if it's a casino <laughs> thing or not. So. Oh, I did. I did though a few years ago after getting into all this in a big way. I did learn how to play uh, Chemin de Fer, and it's basically a funky version of blackjack. It's not yes, that it interesting. Is, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it yeah. is, it, in, in some ways, I was thinking, I kept thinking how it is, if you know billiards, and I'm sure you probably do, it is to blackjack as nine ball is to eight ball. Very similar, but just a little different using the numbers differently. Yeah. So. Yeah. But yeah. But basically, it's another 21 type game. Yeah. There you game. go. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not very exciting, honestly. No, so I, th- I think the, the, the poker worked a lot better from a cinematic storytelling point of view. So Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so the players at the table, we talked about uh, the lady, Madame Wu, um, is the same lady who played Ling, the girl in uh, You Only Live Twice. So um, mm. another, another nice. I also, I don't have a note, but a vague memory, and I may be wrong about this, but I think one of the other players is the daughter of Eunice Grayson, who played Sylvia Trench. Oh wow, that would be cool. I may be wrong on that, but I, they've got that's ringing a very faint bell with me. Um, okay. Uh, the one thing that really bugs me here um, is the whole thing with Lashif's tell. Um, yeah, a player of his caliber wouldn't have a tell. Certainly not one as clumsy as that. That he like all of a sudden realizes in the middle of the scene where he's like, where he basically goes, "Oh gosh, what am I doing? Oh, look what I've done! I've given myself away." And you're like, "Come on!" Yeah, 
the only thing I can think here is is part of the double or treble bluff that he sort of did it deliberately to yeah to well, sort of well you know, set Bond up for, for later. I thought that at first, I because you know when he does it and Bond bases his play off of it, and then it turns out to not be real, and he says, "I guess you thought I was bluffing." Then I'm like, oh, yeah, he did it on purpose to set Bond up. But then a little bit later, he starts doing it again, and he realizes he's doing it very visibly. And then you're like, well, which is it? So there was a little confusion there. Right, yeah. And I would have thought Bond, if he'd seen somebody with such an obvious tail, would have got suspicious about it and not. Yeah. Anyway, that that, that part of it just didn't work for me. Right, um, no, I agree. Right. Um, so we get the, um, So at this part of the game is also when Bond orders the Vespa Martini for the first time. Um Cool scene um, of him apparently making up this really exotic me- uh, recipe right off the top of his head. Um, <laughs> though he he orders it in the it, the way he orders it is the Fleming is as it is in Fleming's books. <laughs> and then Which, every, everybody around is like, "Oh, that sounds good. I have one of those too." I have one of those too. Yeah. And everybody starts. You can't, you can't actually that the drink as he ordered it doesn't exist anymore um, because he ordered it with Keenan Ouellette. And Keenan Ouellette was drawn, withdrawn from the market in 1986 because oh, okay. it's actually got uh, quinine in it. Oh, okay. But um, I did. So, so you actually can't you can't actually order a, 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 a completely accurate Vespa since 1986. So, wow. um, okay. But uh, yeah, but I do like the scene though. Everybody's going around. So, yeah, that sounds good. I'll have one of those. And Lashif is just yeah. losing his mind. He's like, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, if we're ready to play, what, I don't forget exactly what he says, but he says something to the effect of, if we're ready to play cards now, you know, if you people yeah. are, if you people are are quite, are you, if you're quite finished, is basically what he's saying, you know, which is so, yeah, yeah, so, so. funny. Um, so that's the end of the first four hour stretch of the of the uh, of the game, and then they're going to take an hour's break. So um, Lashif. Uh, heads back up to his his room where his girlfriend is basically being used as bait by the terrorists um, mm-hmm. who have found out that the Shifa has basically lost all their money. Um, <laughs> They're not happy about it. <laughs> and they are not happy about it, yeah. Um, the interesting one here is that, uh, you know, they they then take th- uh, threaten her with a machete and basically go to chop off her hand and then stop just and the chief doesn't like blink nothing completely callous about the fact that they were going to cut off his girlfriend's hand better her than him i think was his attitude (laughs) no reaction whatsoever and the the, the terrorist says about what you should go get yourself another boyfriend Mm -hmm. yet later on she's still with him yes for the rest of the movie i noticed that yes yeah so that was interesting uh, that yeah he I, i just love that even the freaking terrorist warlord guy comments on the quality of Lashif's devotion to his girlfriend. That just cracked me up. Yeah, yeah, as to how callous he is, and yeah. it's like, yeah, yeah. Um, and then again, I'm not sure if it's another mistake, but basically, uh, the terrorist walking down the the hallway, he catch the earpiece in Bond's ear and realize he's he's you know an agent or security or something. So turn around and. Sort of start a firefight, which yeah. ends up with with the uh, the stairwell fight. Um, mm-hmm. Really, again, another really personal, close, violent stairwell fight with the machete and Bond. Basically, you know, dropping somebody down a stairwell and then literally having you know strangling a guy to death right in front of Vespa. Um, with lots of blood around, Bond getting chest wounds. Um, really well done. Um, heavily edited heavily censored and edited in various uh, markets i understand um hmm. but 
yeah. Uh, your only thoughts around this stairwell fight? I think it's again one of the the classic Bond um, fight scenes. Well, yeah, it's once again it's doing more with less. It's that yeah. that's what you get in this movie is stuff that's not you know it's not on a spaceship, it's not on a laser gun. It's not over a volcano or anything. It's just a stairway. And yet the way they do it, it kind of ushers in this, um, you know, the kind of thing that we will see in some high-end TV shows like Daredevil and, you know, and, and movies going forward is this idea. And I mean, in some degree, I think it kind of goes back to what Jackie Chan was doing a few years earlier where you had these very practical but amazing, you know, stunts where they were just... You just cringe at how hard and how violent they are, and it's. Um, I, I like the idea that the Bond films were trying to bring in ideas from other movies and other franchises, and 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 not like to copy them, but just to try to go new places with brutal fight. You, you never would have seen a fight like this in with previous, not even with Pierce Brosnan. I don't think you know. It's 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 taking no. it up another level, you know. Yeah, even with the Timothy Dalton ones, I mm-hmm. you know there was some brutal stuff in that, but not quite to this level. And I think right. you're right. I think that you know it's partly the the brawn, uh, the brawn, born influence and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think I think shows in there, but um, but not in a bad way. I, I think it was uh, it, it fit within the tone of what they were d- trying to do with this movie. Yes, um, I agree. So uh, I, what I like about this is we actually also get to see the impact of a fight like that has on Bond. Again, he's not jumping up straight in his tie and sort of walking right back into the casino. He's heading back into his room. He's covered in blood. You know, he's trying to wash the blood off. He's, you know, drinking whiskey and, refle- <laughs> you know, staring in the mirror, reflecting on what, what happened. Um, you know, so, you know, you can see that it's taken not just a physical toll on him, but it's taken an emotional sort of psychological toll on uh, told on him as well. So. I do. I do like that he keeps leaving the poker game and coming back after cheating death, and is right back to play some play another hand of cards. I, I mean, it just after a while, it gets kind of funny that he goes away, nearly dies, and then comes back and he's cleaned himself up again. He, I mean, I mean, how many times does he have to go clean himself up? You know, and and Lashif makes a joke about it that oh, you know, you're. You're sweating, you know, through the you didn't you change your shirt, you know, and he's like, well, you know, I, I just I like the fact that he um he keeps having to change clothes and go mop the blood off himself in well, between I, hands. I like the fact, yeah, I mean, at the end of this one, he comes back in and Lashif makes the crack about the fact that Bond's changed his shirt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and are we making you sweat? Um, you know, and Bond gets back by poking at Lashif about the, the weeping blood thing. Right. So, I, the thing is, it's a very short scene, but. And then Bond goes back to the hotel room to, where he finds Vespa. But the rules of the game they set up earlier was basically that they take a break after every four hours of play. So was Vespa basically sitting in the shower for four hours? Mm, maybe. It's a hotel. They should have unlimited hot water. <laughs> yeah. You know, trying Because she's talking about trying to get the blood off. Um, but yeah. if you go by the rules of the game, basically that was a four-hour gap. Um, because Bond had gone back to the game. Anyway, yeah. I'm maybe overthinking it. But, I'm not um, sure. Are uh, we, but are I we... think again, it's, a, it's a very iconic scene of him joining her and comforting her in the shower. Um, and, and right, I, want, I want to talk about that scene, but first I have a question before I forget. I'm not sure if it's now or if it's later when he puts the little device in Le Chiffre's inhaler. Oh, I think that's before they get before um, – the stairwell fight. I think okay. that's at the end. Does anything ever come of that? Because if it did, I didn't notice it. It didn't stick with me. Yeah, he uses his phone to basically track to see which which is uh, Lashifra's room. 
Oh, okay, that's right. It's like the little three-dimensional image yeah. of the. Okay, yeah, I remember that. Okay, I'd forgotten that. All right, so yeah, the shower. That what, do I am I correct in that I read that originally they wanted Bond to like take his clothes off or something or go in there and he says no no I just should walk in there and sit down with her. No, originally they um, Vesper was meant to be just in her underwear. Okay, and they uh, and Daniel Craig was basically like that wouldn't be character so she wouldn't stop and take the time to undress right. if she was feeling that distraught and covered in blood she'd just be in there you know in her clothes stuff so it was him that basically said yeah no you know and does he go back and play more poker after this doesn't he yeah so well it, so does he have another suit <laughs> yeah just, probably he's well, going he his suit. remember he had his suit and then she got him a suit because he said i've already yeah. got a suit yeah yeah so, He's got at least two two, two suits with him. So. I was just thinking because he's just going through his clothes. Really, he's burning through his wardrobe pretty quickly in these scenes. Yeah, I don't so. know how many shirts he had with him, but yeah, at least he had another suit. So, <laughs> okay. so yeah, they're, they're, then back to the game, and this is where the chief does the double bluff of Bond with the use of the towel and wipes Bond out. Um, yeah, and he then, thinks Vesper's going to give him the money easily, and she's like, "No." Ew. So he goes goes back to the bar in a snit and orders his vodka martini. He isn't a snit. And yeah. who should come uh, along? Oh, no, hang on. So he orders the vodka martini. <sighs> the, bar, the barman asks him. Shaking a stirred. And Bond says. Do I look like I give a damn? I give a damn. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Uh, I wish yeah. that Pierce had gotten to say that once. <laughs> he could have pulled it off. Although he would have said it much. He would have been like, do I look like I give a damn? Yeah. yeah. But, um. Yeah, that's a really good good scene, good line. Everything is awesome about that. And then that's when the CIA <laughs> makes right. it fr- the United the United States of America with unlimited money from Uncle Sugar shows up. Yep. So basically, well, Bond grabs a steak knife with the intention of attacking right. the chief, and he gets stopped by Felix, who introduces himself as mm-hmm. being related as a brother from Langley. Yeah, uh, which we know what that is, right? Yeah, and gives him the five million uh, buy-in. Um, even though he's actually still in the game, which is interesting. Well, he's um, him, he says I'm hemorrhaging chips or something. Chips, yeah, and so. yeah, yeah. Um, on the ba- on the thing that basically if Bond beats him, they'll hand he'll hand over the chief to the CIA, and the CIA will be the ones who bring him in. Right. Which I'm sure M wouldn't be happy about, but whatever. Oh well. Um, so Bond returns to the table where the chief's very very loyal girlfriend um, spikes <laughs> his drink. Um, yep. So. Um, so I'm guessing this is really the because this is sort of the the modern equivalent of like in the book one of Le Chiffre's guy uh, has a like a, a a walking stick rifle that he sticks in Bond's back and I mm. guess this is meant to be sort of the equivalent of that um, piece. So, um, mm-hmm. so, so we, Bond, we get oh we just get a, another another Alan we get another really spectacular sequence involving using his car to. To <laughs> to diagnose the poison and 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 restart his heart, I, right? That and just I, blows my mind. I love. Well, this I actually like the bit. I love the bit before that when he actually we were talking about keeping it real and that he tries to make himself throw up. You know, he grabs the salt water, the salt and the water mm-hmm. from the table and staggers to the bathroom to try and basically give himself a mimetic and get himself to throw up to bring up the poison. And then then when that doesn't work, he staggers to the car. So again, he's just using stuff around him. Yep. Um, Very effectively. Uh, I love that. So yeah. Mm-hmm. So he staggers, and then we have the the AED and the. So this is about as close to as gadget as we as we get, really, or as cl- you know. Yes. Uh, is is the uh, 
and it, you know he just happened to have an AED and the EpiPens in his car. Yeah. It was very very thoughtful of them. Um, <laughs> well, they always give him the gimmick he's going to need. We know this. Yeah. yeah. So. And in yeah. this case, it happened to be things that could treat a, a poisoning by digitalis. Yep. And he had to stick that thing in his wrist, in his vein, too. And I love that, like, very carefully injecting into the vein in your neck, and he just, like, sticks it in the side of his neck and falls yeah. over. I'm like, well, I guess that hit the vein, but I don't know how, but we'll just go with it, you know, so. Right. Um, we, so afterwards, he gets back, says, you know, that last hand almost, because, you know, the chief's like, are you okay? And he's like, that last hand, it almost killed me. Almost killed uh-huh. me. Uh-huh. Great, great, great. Um, and then we get down to the last hand with the four players left and Bond goes all in. So does Le Chief and Bond wins, um, which what I've read actually was very bad etiquette um, because apparently when Bond got his cards, he should have known that he had an unbeatable hand and should have actually raised it. Um, let everybody know that he had the unbeatable hand earlier in that go round. He shouldn't have waited to the end and done the great reveal. Apparently it's bad poker etiquette. If you have the unbeatable hand, you have to let people know. So. Interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't have known that either. So maybe he's so not as great as he's yeah. cracked up to be. Yeah. Um, so Bond's got the money. Woo, 150 million. And it's gone off into some account somewhere that Vespa has told, given them the account. Yeah. That, again, this is another one of these bits where I'm going, okay, I think I understand that. So he they they put the money into an account that's supposed to be one that's like, Bond can access for MI6 or whatever, right? And in fact, yep. Felix already told him he doesn't want the money back. Do we look like we right. need the money? Which yep. I thought was a great line. And then it actually, though, is Vespers giving that money to Mr. White, is to Quantum, basically, even though we don't name Quantum yet? Yeah, basically. Or it's, it, it, it's in an account, and at some point when she gets to Venice, she has to take it out of the account and give it to Quantum. Yes. So it, and, and in exchange, to, they don't kill Bond, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So. But they still were probably going to kill her, was my understanding. Uh, she thought she was necessary. going... Well, they were saying that she thought she was going to die. She thought right. she was going to her death when she took that suitcase, the little briefcase full of money. Well, because she'd also been siphoning off that money to finance their round-the-world lifestyle. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Anyway, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Uh-huh. So, um, so they're having the meal in the restaurant. Bond decides to name his drink the Vespa. We find out about the fact that her necklace is the Algerian love knot, which sort of plays in at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Bond, Bond, she she says she's getting texts from Mathis, which sort of makes Bond think, you know, is Mathis sort of the one who let Le Chiffre know that Bond knew about his tail? Um, stuff like that. So... Um, so Bond follows her out of the hotel, sees her get kidnapped, and we get the great chase um, in the Aston Martin, um, which leads to the uh, Guinness Book of Records roll of a car. Yes. Yeah, and that's, so. again, another great – there's just so many. There's just so many great sequences like that in this movie. It's really, it's really and remarkable. I, I, and that's actually pretty much from the novel. I mean, mm-hmm. that sequence of you know Vespa being laid in the road, um, the car, you know, Bond swerving and crashing and stuff and getting dragged from the wreck is pretty much, you know, from uh, from the novel. So uh, very cool. It is really good. Yeah. Really yeah. Remarkable. Um, even, even though it, it cuts me up to see that lovely Aston Martin, <laughs> which is which is actually a different model than the one he was driving it. But anyway, um, <laughs> but to see that role. Um, 
Apparently, they couldn't. The DBS was too heavy. They couldn't get it to roll, so they had to use a DB9. Oh, so, okay. Um, and a like a rocket thing to get it going. But um, <laughs> they they drag Bond out, cut the homing device from him, and Lashif drops the whole thing about Mathis not being your friend; he's my friend. Which um, again confused me because if he's not a bad guy, then why did he say that? And I just I don't understand. That's really confusing to me. So basically. I think he did that to get Bond to suspect Mathis. But if he's going to kill Bond anyway, why did it matter? But anyway. Yeah, it wasn't uh, yeah. clear. Um, and then we get the, the scene that uh, no male, red-blooded male actually wants to watch. Uh, <laughs> oh, gosh, yes. The scene, <laughs> the, the scene that's the reason that I haven't shown this movie to Mira yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually think it's a really well done scene. Um I actually think the knotted rope is even more cringeworthy than the carpet beater they used in the novel. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really, really well done. That's true. Um, and I actually like the fact that, you know, Bond is clearly scared and in pain, but uses his bravado and humor to sort of handle a situation and try and transfer the embarrassment to Le Chief. Um, as best as anybody humanly could. I mean, he's screaming right, in yeah. agony and then kind of lets it morph into, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um and then Mr. White appears and Mr. White blows Lashif away. So, so why? Because Lashif was so the, the way I can think about it is it was Quantum that introduced Lashif to his clients, but Lashif was embezzling his clients' money, which looks bad at okay. on, reflects badly on Quantum. All right. So they had to make an example of him that basically people don't mess about with Quantum's clients. It works, and and, yep. and so he he kills Lashif because of that, and he lets yep. Bond live and Vesper because well he wants to get the money from Vesper, and he lets Bond live because Vesper uh, Vesper apparently promised that if well, he, he, to leave he needs Bond. They need Bond for the password, right? But they have to, Bond has to be kept alive, so he'll give Vesper the password so they can get the money out of the account at some point. But yet they don't under—they don't seem to understand that because when they when they come to and everything and they're not dead, they're like, "Why did they leave you alive?" You know, they ask that yeah, question. Bond, yeah, but Bond doesn't understand why he was left alive. But I think the reason that Quantum left him, uh, White, Mr. White left him alive, is because Bond—he needs Bond to tell Vesper the password. Right, but that just seems kind of obvious. I'm like, why does he? why is he wondering? It why seems, is who wondering? Why is Bond wondering why they left him alive when it's... Because they, he doesn't... Mm-hmm. Uh, because he doesn't know it's a double-cross. He doesn't know Vesper's double-crossing at that point, so why? he doesn't know anything about that connection. As far as he's concerned, it's just a random guy who came in and killed okay. the chief. So, All right. from his point of view. Uh, that's the way I was reading it. Sure. Okay. Okay. All right. So we get I, we get Bond's lengthy recovery and growing relationship with Vesper. Is this the sort of the quiet piece that you were talking about? And then he sort of decided, well, the, you know, the the shower scene and then this. Yes. But yes. this but but this is like you know in a in a traditional Bond movie this is like the final scene where they float off in the boat together. Right. And in the next movie he's not with her anymore. Whereas in yeah. this movie it suddenly turns into on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yep. Yeah. So unexpected, uh, and, it, and it's also here that Bond basically gets Mathis arrested as being the mm-hmm. traitor, even though he's not. But yeah, but he's still. Which, yeah. which again, I'm so. like, okay, I guess. <laughs> yeah, um, 
And then we, so we get the whole thing. I'm going to quit the job, sail around the world. He drafts his resignation letter, and they sort of fail. They sail into Venice, where Vesper sees one of the quantum agents on the standing on the side as they sail in. Um, and then they obviously text her that says, "Hey, you've got to get the money out um, of the bank." Um, and this is where it sort of all collapses around her. Um, you know, Bond finds out that. The money was never put in the treasury account, and then he checks Vesper's phone message, which she's obviously mm-hmm. left deliberately for him to find, and starts to realize that she's being playing her own game with the money. Um, and the way I was getting it was that then she had to get the money out to meet with this uh, the guy from Quantum, Gettler, um, which sort of leads to the firefight in the courtyard and bonds. At this point, he's actually quite ready to kill her because he's been playing her, or she's been playing him, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, which then again leads to the firefight in the house being renovated. Um, I'm not sure about the whole sinking house thing. Um, yeah. I know this was sort of something that was added towards the end um, of the script writing process. Um, this whole ending with the, with the sinking house. Um, I don't know. It, it feels slightly out of character with the rest of the movie for me. What, what about for you? It, well, again, I mean, it, it, it just the, the, the structure, it's, it's all about the structure that it, every time I think the movie's kind of coming in for a landing, we get a whole new bit like this. And I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure how else you could have done some of the things that they do in this. I mean, the, the main objective is she tries to deliver the money. It, it, the main objective of what they're trying to show is that she tries to deliver the money. They see Bond. They grab her. They shoot at Bond. There's a running fight through the house, and she ends up locked inside the elevator while they're killing each other. But I don't. I mean, it, it made as much sense to do it in a in a sinking under house going underwater as I mean. Would you maybe could have done it on a boat? I don't I know. Don't, I, I don't know where yeah. else you could have done it, especially I mean, if you're going to drown idea, her. Well, yeah. I mean, the whole thing was to get her to the point of suicide, which again is is right out of the book. I mean, she commits suicide in the book too. So you know, um, yeah. It, I'm not. I, I haven't got any great ideas off the top of my head as how I do it, but I, I, I think partly because this is really the only CGI heavy sequence in, in the movie. And again, everything's been so notice. realistic. Everything's been so realistic. And all of a sudden we get this, you know, sinking house in the middle of Venice and everybody in St. Mark's Square is stood watching it. And it's like, eh, that's not very realistic. Um, I don't yeah. know. It, it just, I, I guess I just didn't even notice that. I always hear people complain about the CGI and these things and I never even notice it. So, Maybe I'm just right. lucky or just dumb. I don't know, but it never really occurs <laughs> to me. So I don't know. Just tonally, it just seemed at odds with the rest of the movie to me. So okay. Well, yeah, I I, I agree that it's that there's a lot. Yeah, just the the last few scenes, regardless in this movie, I, I don't know. That's that was they were what bothered me the first time or two I saw it. Like I said, now right. that I'm now that I'm used to it and I expect it, it doesn't bother me anymore. But the first couple of times I saw this movie. I'm like, where did all this come from? I thought I understood what this movie was, and suddenly there's a battle in a house in Venice, and I'm not understanding. You know, it just yeah. kind of yeah. came out of left field suddenly. But like I say, now that I know it's there and I'm used to it, I'm I'm. It doesn't bother me at all anymore. Okay, it right, bothers me more than you. So okay, okay. that's maybe thinking I should have dropped mine down to n- number three on my list, not number two. Um, <laughs> Uh, so as you said, it basically gets to the point where Vespa's, you know, locked in the in the uh, in the elevator, and then the, the house sinks, uh, and then she uh, commits suicide by basically drowning herself. Why does she? Um, why does she lock the door and throw away the key so that he can't get her out? 
I don't. I mean, I know. I guess because she feels like she betrayed him and she's committing suicide. Yeah, she, yeah, but he doesn't yeah. want her to do that, and he's not. Well, just, initially he does because he, when they they said about killing her, yeah, uh, he, he says me to, uh, me first or something. But and then, then then he switches to trying to rescue her, and it all seems a bit yeah strange I, very quick. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't. And then he says the bitch is dead. You know, like yeah, yeah. Like I would have killed her if she had lived, and then, but he's so mad that she didn't live, and then I, you know, I, I don't know how much of it is bluster and how much of it is, you know, legitimately he's that mad at her, and right. then especially later when he finds out she actually was helping him, you know. Yeah. So. Or trying to. Yeah, it's a, it's a little confusing. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's too bad too because like I said, I loved this movie the first time I saw it, right up until the last 20 minutes or so of it, where I really started getting confused and wasn't really sure what to think about it anymore. And right. I've kind of gotten to the point now that I I can at least overlook the parts that confuse me and just go with the rest because I know they're there. But when I really stop and think about it again, I still kind of get going, oh, if only that made more sense to me. And it, again, it may just be me. It may not be... You know, it may not be the fault of the movie. It may just be that I'm just not getting it or something. I don't know. So, yeah, I I, I think this last bit feels like a rewrite. Um, yeah, you know. Um, so, um, except for the last, so I, I sort of agree with you. Except for the last, the last couple of minutes, which are awesome. Um, <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. There's, which is which again, basically so 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 many so many moments like that in this movie, and and we come back with another one at the end. Yeah. Yeah, with uh, Vespa sent one last text with the name Mr. White on it and a phone number, which mm-hmm. I assume is how Bond found out where Mr. White's estate was. Mm-hmm. Um, Bond's waiting for him to arrive and then, you know, um, shoots him in the leg. Um, and then Mr. White crawls to the hat, crawls towards his house, and there's Bond on the steps. And you get the slow build towards the James Bond theme. And at last, we actually get Daniel Craig Bond. claiming the title Bond. James Bond. Bond. And you get that awesome what up boom. <laughs> yeah. He, oh, the, the, I love the score, the kicking in right there at the end. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's now Bond, which is great. Um, so I, I love that ending mm-hmm. um, Absolutely. to this movie. Yeah. So Dra- dragging, uh, dragging Mr. White along. No, he's crawling along the ground. That's right. He's crawling yeah, sure, along he's crawling, and crawling. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then he looks yeah, trying up. Yeah. Trying to get into his house, and he looks up and sees Bond with the, with, with the gun, with the so, sniper yeah. gun, and yeah, yeah, and you get that awesome musical, um, yeah, crescendo there, just fantastic. Yeah. And then you so, actually yeah, get I, the Bond theme on the on the outro there. Yeah, yeah. So really, really cool. Well, the Bond theme over the end credits, excellent. Um, so, like you said up front, for me, um, this is a good, straightforward Bond doing his job on a mission, action packed. Tense spy adventure story, no gadgets, no quips. I miss those. <laughs> those are the Bond movies I want. So, can we have more of those, please? Oh, I know. Well, I like that they're, you know, I've said before, I'm not sure if you and I have talked about this, but on the other shows, I've, I've said before that when the movies come out, I want each one to be a particular kind of thing. But when you look back on the entire catalog from a distance, like we, like we have quite a distance now, I'm glad that there's a variety. You know, there's a yeah. little there's a little something of everything now. So if you if you want the lighthearted, charming, fun, you can go watch a Roger Moore. If you want the hard edged but still fun sixties, you got all the Sean Connerys and, and so on and so on. And I like that there's a couple of more, you know, these Daniel Craig, just brutal but with so many cool 
moments that just there's just I mean one after another of these moments in this movie where you go oh man that was awesome and there's not that many in a lot of the other Bond movies not this many I don't think not like this one no, no. like like I said you know th- this one is story over spectacle it's character it's character more than plot um, I think it just hits all the right notes other than that slight little hiccup at the end in the Venice sequence but other, which I think is what gets it keeps it at number two for me rather than number one but uh yeah so much so many good things um despite a little nitpick here and there that we talked about i think uh it, it works really really well and one i quite happily watch over and over again mm-hmm. any opportunity so. yeah i think that the um the, like i said the reason it's number four for me is it just can't get past one two and three but i think that what keeps it from is that there's like i said there's still parts of it that I'm still not completely comfortable that I understand or that make that really work for me. But that's just a few things and mostly toward the end. And that's true of a lot of Bond movies, unfortunately. Um, and I'll say this because it ties right in. I love the beginning of the next one. And I love where it picks right up. And it took me in the theater a while to figure out what was going on because I'd forgotten. I mean, I know it's only two years. It's they they For one movie... <laughs> for one movie, Alan, they got back to the two-year timetable. And I was like, oh, okay. And then the stupid anniversary comes along and messes that all up. Ugh, does way more harm than good, in my opinion, the anniversaries do. There's more wrong with that movie than just the anniversary stuff. But You're we'll get to that in a right about months. that. You're absolutely right. <laughs> but, but yeah, I just – yeah, there's a lot about Quantum that's going to go wrong. But while we're talking about Casino Royale, I just to say the parts of Quantum that are tied to this movie are to me easily the best parts, and I love it. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. Any last thoughts about Casino Royale with cheese? No. Like <laughs> I said, this is one I will watch any opportunity I get to rewatch it. It's right up there. Um, so uh, loved the opportunity to watch it again and uh, what. Watch it more closely and take a few more notes and see if you. Interestingly, the number of times I've seen it, but like I said earlier, there's a couple of things that it was like the first time that I spotted it. So just mm-hmm. like any good movie, lots of little things in there that just build on, layer on top of each other that provide a really good experience. Really great story, really well acted, really well produced. Yeah. Loved it. Can't I can't argue with any of that. Every time I watch it, I like it more, and that's that's a rare movie that that even when you. St- Start figuring out, you know, some of the issues you have with it. You still like it more. And like I said, there—I don't think there's any other Bond movie that has as many. You're right, and, and we, we both—we've both said words to the effect of it doesn't have as much spectacle. It's more solid, but it trades the big spectacle for what I would say is like the little spectacle of those great scenes where you just go, "Whoa, that was cool." You don't need yep. a giant volcano and and a giant blimp and or a little blimp. You don't need all those big things. <laughs> you just need moments where James Bond is cool and the stuff around him is is like mind-blowingly cool and, and you get you get buckets of them in this movie. So, all right. Well, I think that'll bring us to the end of Casino Royale. It's 21 down and 3 to go before we get to the to the new one coming up next year. So, we're we're bringing this sucker in. <laughs> We're going to get, I guess, so December we'll do Quantum of Solace. January yep. we'll do Let the Sky Fall. And February we will, if everything stays on track, we will do Spectre. And uh, I'm not quite sure what we'll do in March, but in April we'll have a new James Bond movie to talk about. Yeah. So looking looking forward to it. It's, it's I, I must admit, when we started this, I was like, 
are we gonna are we gonna do it are we gonna keep going and it looks like we're gonna bring this in on, on time so i think we're uh, gonna bring it in on time and under budget <laughs> yeah excellent all so right look, looking looking forward to continue these some of these conversations are gonna get real interesting over the next we year, certainly right? will all right well on her majesty secret podcast will return thanks a lot alan cheers fam have a good evening This has been a White Rocket Entertainment production.